Hope is the thing with feathers. Hope is the thing with feathers. That's like a bird. Like a bird. That perches in the soul. That perches in the soul. Welcome to the Thing with Feathers podcast, a podcast about birds and hope. I'm your host, birding enthusiast, Courtney Ellis. Welcome back to the Thing with Feathers podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Ellis. Today with us, we have Joden Fine. He is a native of Albuquerque, New Mexico. He is a college student at Occidental in LA. He is striving to positively impact a planet in crisis, studying urban and environmental policy. He is an eBird regional reviewer for New Mexico, an occasional author for ABA journals, a formal, former central New Mexico Audubon Society board member, and he has done all that at 19 years old. Joden, welcome to the pod. Thanks so much, Courtney. It's an honor to be here. Very excited to chat with you today. I don't see how a person gets all that in by age 19. When did you start birding, and how did you get connected with the wonderful world of birds? I started in, let's see, 2016 I started, but it was sort of a really just getting into the very basics. And then I would say 2017 was when I, I really started. But I would say the, the only way to to get there is meeting all sorts of the amazing folks in birding who have, you know, who take me under their wing and have been willing to kind of let me join them on trips and sort of mentor me. There, there are so many resources out there, so many birders who have been at it for decades and, and are just so happy to share their knowledge. And it's always, it's always awesome. It really is a sweet community where it, it doesn't feel like most people guard their knowledge. Like they're so excited to bring others in on this is the thing that I saw and this is where I saw it. I actually, I learned about you and your birding from Fernando Ortega, who was a guest on the podcast months and months ago. And he said, you know who you should talk to? We signed off and then we were chatting and he's like, the best birder I know, you need <laughs> to talk to Joan Fine and just the connectional community of the world of birds. That is, that's so sweet of Fernando. He, he's a great guy and his yard has been kind of, it's gone down, um, as like a famous vortex of, I don't know if vortex is the right word, but it's like, it's like the best bird trap in all of Albuquerque or at least one of them somehow in the middle of the, in the middle of this dense stretch of, um, it's called the Bosque where there's all these cottonwoods up the Rio Grande river. His yard is pretty close by. And yet somehow so many rare birds have chosen to land right there in Fernando's yard instead of the massive, you know, forest of cottonwoods. And, and so half of the Albuquerque birding community has been to his yard looking for uh, various rarities. I love that. And I love that he lets people in because some people can be a jerk about that, right? It's my yard oh, yeah. and they're my birds and too bad for all of you. Yeah, no, it's so generous. And it's, it's sort of a, a testament to the um, openness of the community in, in many senses. Because I actually met Fernando by I saw his eBird alert. Of, he found the first um, Bernalillo County record of a Baltimore Oriole. And I said, I messaged him on Facebook, you know, leap of faith and said, hey, Fernando, can I come Can I come look around your yard? I'm a young birder. That's an awesome find, you know, something like that. And he was super willing to, to let me poke around. And I did not find the bird, but I, I got I left with a new friend. So it was it was um, better than the Baltimore Oriole. Mm. I love that. So so much of the whimsy of birding is you go out looking for something and you end up seeing something completely different. And sometimes that's not Absolutely. a bird. It's a person. Yeah. I, 
I know you have a thing for snakes also. <laughs> yeah, no, it, whether it's a person or, or a snake or any sort of, um, any sort of flora or fauna, there's almost no way to go birding and not see something new or interesting or that changes your perspective on things. Um, snakes are such a treat when you're out in the field and, and get the opportunity to run into one or, or even lizards and, and all the amazing fauna that's usually surrounding birds. It's really fun to talk to a birder from my region. You know, you hang out in LA and New Mexico. I talk to a lot of birders in Michigan and places like that. And I'm like, oh, we don't have that. We don't have that. We don't have that. But lizards, we got lizards. (laughs) That's a a point of connection. (laughs) Yeah, it really seems to coincide with the birds because like right at 9 a.m. or so, the, the lizards start going crazy sometimes I'm walking and like every step one is darting across the trail (laughs) um but that's you know that's always fun they do their push-ups compliments yeah yeah the push-ups are great so what was it about birds that sparked this interest for you? Because I think, you know, the the stereotype about teenagers is they're interested in, you know, sex, drugs, and video games and things that are bright <laughs> and flashy. And and birds are bright and flashy, but in a very quiet, subtle sort of way. What was it about birds that gripped you? Um, well, back to snakes, actually. I, I was – I started off really into just like anything, nature, bugs. Uh, I had a bug club with my cousins that like – age seven or eight, um, where we would catch bugs in our yard. But that sort of evolved to snakes partially because of all of the great, like natural world shows like Jeff Corwin and Brady Barr and and all that good stuff. Um, I was just really into the snakes and, and I had this seventh grade teacher, Mr. Anderson, still a good friend of mine, um, who had like a collection of snakes that, that he would keep in his classroom. This is in seventh grade. And I would, um, I would always want to go like hold the snakes, right? Cause that's, it's not always easy to find them. And so that was the most accessible way to like be around snakes. And so I would, I would always try to coordinate a time to see them. And he was only available typically on Friday evenings, which is when he was running the, the bird watching club at the high school. Um, and so, Oh, I had to go to the bird club in order to hold the snakes, which at the time was like, Oh, <laughs> you know, why, why do I, why do I have to sit through this? Just want to hold, you know, his rosy boa. But uh, as it turned out, um, I think one meeting in and I was already hooked. So I owe it all to Mr. Anderson. Um, so you have snakes. a spark snake more than a spark bird. <laughs> yeah, that's that's crazy to think about. But yeah, snakes are the spark bird. <laughs> I love it. And it's all connected. And and that was one of the things you wanted to bring into this conversation was just the ways that getting connected to anything in the natural world connects you more deeply to nature. And you might just be interested in birds, but by being interested in birds, you start to need to know trees and you need to know flora. And you, you know, talk a little bit about the interconnectedness of the natural world and how birds and snakes both have drawn you into your chosen field of study. Yeah. I mean, you almost can't, you almost cannot ignore the other, you know, the other side of, of the natural world when you're out. Like I became interested in butterflies just because like, you know, it'd be a slow, hot day of birding. And, and then I see a, you know, a group of flowers covered in like three different species of subtly marked, but like gorgeous butterflies. And, and so it may have started as sort of like a birding is going slow, you know, what else is around, but it's actually turned into like, it's a really cool way to, um, it's just such a compliment to being out in the field. And I think as you learn about, um, 
other creatures that are using the same habitat as birds, you actually learn more about about the habitat the birds are in and their distribution. And it's it's a really good way to like um, just sort of conceptualize an area and and um, that all of the creatures that are in it. And it's fun. <laughs> it's very fun. <laughs> I love that. I'm I'm much more into birds than I am into plants. But when I get one of those eBird alerts, it'll say, "Oh, the bird is sitting in this type of pine tree," and now I have to learn about pine trees, or I can't find the bird. Right? It's like it's forcing right. me, for my own good, I think, forcing yeah. me to to learn and discover a little bit more. Absolutely. Plus, then, like in the future, when you're describing, when you're on a bird and telling, you know, someone you're with about it, I'm still really bad at plants, so I end up saying it's in the green tree, and they're like. Dude, like you're gonna have to clarify, um, but yeah, no, it, it's it's super helpful in in all senses. Tall green tree that makes people on eBird yeah. crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I've I've been on the I've been the one saying that before, and nobody loves it. But so, tell us about urban and environmental policy. What what was the interest that that drew you into that field of study? I know very very little about it, but it sounds very important. Yeah, um, well, I started off actually interested in bio, um, just because you know, so interconnected with birds, and um, I have done various like sort of bio field jobs and and sort of programs in that and. And I love them and they're super, you know, they're super important and exciting in their way. But um, I was sort of interested in taking more of a reading writing route that looks at the um, a broader scope. Um, and I think, you know, attacking conservation at the policy level is a is an equally important, um, equally important as collecting data and, you know, answering questions. That's what they like to say about science. Science is answering questions. And I think policy is sort of a way to do something with those answers. Um, Hmm. and I think policy and bio really can complement each other. So that, that crossroad is something I'm very interested in and, and looking forward to explore. I don't know exactly what I will do, but, um, something along those lines. And college can be a journey, you know, sometimes we yeah. go in with a major and switch it seven times, but I hear the passion and I hear the drive and I think <laughs> there, there are great things in store. There are great things ahead. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. It can be difficult as a birder. You know, we see the effects of a changing, warming climate. We see the effects of species decline. We see things we had a couple months ago. We had bird flu out here in California, and I'd go to the park, and, you know, you'd see dead ducks on the shore, and there's a sign saying don't touch them. And it can be hard, I think, to to hold on to hope, and especially working in the field that you're working in and being out birding as often as you are. Where are you finding hope? Yeah, I would say a couple of places, and it's often in the community more than anything. Um, I would say sort of like what we talked about in that birding is so um, open and welcoming in many ways. Like it, it's a place where where ideas and sort of values and, and even just like pure authenticity of people kind of collide. And there's not a ton of places like that. Um, where you can just feel like, you know, obviously filtered, but like your unfiltered self, um, as is in birding, like that's probably one of the only places where I feel just completely like, you know, authentic and open. And, and it's, a, 
I would say that is a source of hope that there's a community like that where there's just like such a lack of judgment and, uh, and an abundance of just, you know, kindness and, and, and so many like worlds collide. I mean, there are so many crazy careers and, and, um, just backstories that all meet, you know, right here in birding. Um, it's like, it's like a small community, but at the same time, sort of massive and, and just all these perspectives and, and, uh, worldviews colliding is very, very exciting and, and sort of hopeful that people can all meet with one passion and work toward a, a common goal. Birds are the great unifier. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> it's hard um, to be mad about birds. It's hard to not like birds. You know, no one likes a bird that pooped on their car, but other than that. Right. Yeah. I mean, something about a bird is just inherently hopeful too. Like, I don't know, you, you know, you can't really be like, you can't be unhappy while you're looking at a bird or, or, um, it, it's just like, it's such a happy little creature doing its thing. And, and if that doesn't spark joy, uh, who knows what will. I think that's, I think that's so true. You mentioned you're hopeful also that we're in the early stages of an environmental renaissance. I was I was speaking to a friend who's living in an area that has all this wildfire smoke right now, and she's working in conservation. And she said, Courtney, it's so hard because I can't breathe the air and, and to feel hopeful when I can't breathe the air. And I, I told her your, your comment about the environmental renaissance. And she was like, that was what I needed to hear today. Like, that's, that's so encouraging <laughs> to hear from someone so young that they're so hopeful. So tell me about that, the environmental renaissance. What, what hope do you see that the lights are turning on for people that this might be important? Yeah, I mean, I would say that the lights definitely need to continue faster turning on and, and that we're not, you know, it's, it's not like a, we're not by any means at a perfect point, but I don't think there's ever been a time where people care about the environment this much. It's like become pop culture in some ways. Um, pretty much everyone you talk to, at least in, in, in a college setting and in, you know, mostly in the birding setting is like very tuned into conservation and climate change. And, and like, you know, there's some people joke about the, like, Oh, they're saving the turtles with, you know, with compostable straws or whatever. And, and maybe that's not going to have a tremendous impact, but just like these broad scale changes that are, that are, um, sort of occurring and it's like I just think that a lot um, a lot of people care more than they ever have and even though there's like so far been very you know minor minor steps I think I think it's on everyone's mind and I think everyone is sort of thinking about and doing what they can to maybe take further steps maybe bigger steps than compostable straws and and uh, I truly believe that um Humanity can turn it around if, if we continue on this path. And also mm -hmm. if we continue on this path, uh, that, that came out a little wrong because this path <laughs> is not, not a great path. But if we continue on the path of um, caring and thinking about it and, and um, prioritizing the environment, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. So are you seeing a lot of environmental interest and advocacy at your school? I graduated from college in 2005, so almost 20 years ago. And I remember there was a conservation club and an environmental club, but it was small. And it was kind of like, oh, those are those people doing their thing with their taupe colored pants and their silly hats. And, you know, it was kind of this side project 
but it does feel, you know, I work with college students here at the office a bit, that it's becoming more mainstream in a healthy way. It's not just the fringe people who are interested. Is that part of what you're seeing? Exactly. Yeah. It's like, it is so mainstream at this point that even if it's not like readily identifiable to like that person is sort of an environmentalist or that person is like, you know, carrying a tote bag, using a reusable water bottle or whatever, whatever the case may be. Like, it's just, it's definitely something that's super prevalent right now. And, and I don't think, I don't think there's too many conversations relating to like where we are in in the world that don't come back to environment. Um, Mm. So can you guys fix it? Cause we like really messed it up. I'm really sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I sure hope so. Yeah. Yeah. We are, I think there's a lot of great minds on it and, and I hope so. Um, I, was, I, was I, I like the... to think, no, go oh, ahead. Sorry, go for it. I, I guess one thing when I get, when I get sort of stressed or, or down about, you know, the state we're in, in terms of the environment, um, I also like to remember like what, humanity has done and like you know we have iphones and crazy you know so many crazy things that like were unfathomable um you know several decades ago and so while while i'm certainly very concerned i think that um with enough people caring and sort of this trend of of prioritization i think you know there's a lot humanity can do um when they care so as long as people continue to care, I think, um, I think those who are concerned could be impressed by what we're capable of. Uh, that's my hope, at least. Mm, that's a word. We should get T-shirts. Keep caring. Yeah, <laughs> don't 100%. give up. Mm. Right. So that's that's us. where we would have lost. Yeah. Giving yeah. Up. <laughs> Yeah. And I think people that compassion fatigue can be real and you feel like I've been working and working and working and have I made that much of a difference, but that's the only thing that will. So to keep at it. Yeah. hundred percent. So tell us about the birds of New Mexico. What do you see? What do you <laughs> love to see? Why did we have to reschedule this podcast? That is one of my favorite podcast guest stories. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll start with just general New Mexico. Um, I tell people this, it's not the, it's not objectively the best birding state. Um, when there's California's and Texas's and Arizona's existing. Um, but it's the most fun for sure, because Mm. you just have, you have more than a crossroads. You have so many intersections of, of habitat types and ecosystems, um, making it just like wildly fun to bird. And then that combined with the lack of people, um, makes it sort of a frontier, um, when you go out into the, so the Great Plains region of the U.S., we get a little sliver of that in eastern New Mexico, where it's just um, sort of beautiful, sort of not, but there's just extensive prairie. And so there's not a lot of habitat for birds. And one thing that will occur is, whether it's from anthropogenic means or just like a riparian area or whatever the case may be, there's plots of trees that will kind of pop up at various points in this extensive Eastern Plains region. And those are called migrant traps. Um, and so that's one of the most fun types of birding because the idea is that a lost migrant bird is flying over the grassland and suddenly sees, uh, you know, a tight little area of trees and then lands there because, you know, it's the only habitat they've seen for miles and miles. Um, and so looking and birding these like little tiny clumps of trees is so fun and 
and you know that there's like not that many people doing that in the state um, because because of the size. Whereas in California, um, a lot of the cool places that might have that effect or might you know might have the potential to to have a noteworthy sighting will be covered by dozens of people. And so it's very fun to have that opportunity. Um, you see the same thing in the southwestern portion of the state. Um, say as Southeast Arizona is a super popular area in the U.S. because it's so easy to bird the Chiricahuas and the Huachucas and, and um, all, those, all those mountain ranges down there. And there's amazing birds. But in New Mexico, we actually get most of those Southeast Arizona birds. The trick is there's no lodges. There's no good roads. You have to like it's – it's an adventure to get in there. Um, but you can still get them. And so like that opportunity to go in there with, um, without really anyone in, in that whole mountain range, very few people in that whole mountain range, um, and see the same birds in, in a, you know, much less common setting is, is really awesome. And so I think it's just so fun to, to have that opportunity in that state. Does it um, feel more meaningful when you've had to work for it? You can exactly. pull up to the parking lot and see the bird. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's, it's more meaningful. It's more, um, I mean, don't get me wrong. The Chiricahuas are like, they're probably my favorite place in the entire U S but they are sort of, there's some development. I mean, portals, a tiny town and, and, um, there's very few like signs of humanity, but there, there certainly are signs when you're in the New Mexico's sort of closest equivalent for a lot of these birds is called the Peloncio mountains. And, um, there's no buildings really at all. Um, maybe a couple, but if you run into someone, it's usually either like a rancher border patrol. Um, I've actually seen people crossing the border in that mountain range. It's just so rural and, and, um, it, and it's like, you're, you're by yourself in nature or with a friend or whatever, but it's like, it's such a way to connect with the environment and, and, um, and really work for the birds. Mm-hmm. There is something so special about being the only or one of a few people being able to see a bird or a group of birds because you're right. I bird out here in California and often if there's something really cool in the area, I'm sharing that experience with 30 other people. And there's something sweet about that too, but it also Mm -hmm. kind of feels like, okay, like you're trampling the underbrush. Okay. You're being really loud. You know, like there's the poor green-tailed towhee that's like, please, everybody just go away. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just trying to find breakfast. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's, it's sort of a win-win because you're right that like having an opportunity to see other birders excitement is so, so exciting and and fun. Um, one of my favorite things is obviously getting my own state birds or lifers or whatnot, but if I'm taking a friend out, um, from another place or, or whatever, like, you know, someone who hasn't seen some of these birds in New Mexico or in California and I have the opportunity to bird with them and, and take them out, like, strategizing to find them birds that I see every day Hmm. such it's like getting a lifer again because you have the opportunity to like um you know see their excitement and uh work toward a goal to get them them their birds which is just like it it's all over again it's like getting a lifer all over again the regionality of birding is so fascinating because I, I go nuts for a blue jay because we don't have blue jays out here. So anytime I travel and see one, you know, and people are like, yeah, it's a blue jay. We have a thousand of them. But it's when it's not your bird from your area, it's it's brand new and exciting. <laughs> yeah, 100%. My friend Steven lives out here in L.A. and, and he just got his life for blue jay out in um, 
out in the East, but it had become such a thing for him because he was like, he had seen so many other birds and like so many cool species and was like, how do I not have a blue jay on my life list? And so he definitely was very excited and posted about it and everything. It was, uh, everyone was very happy for him to get his blue jay. He'd seen the ivory billed woodpecker, but not the blue jay. Exactly. Yeah. He'd seen <laughs> everything in between, but no blue jays. Um, well, Jordan, tell us uh, about rescheduling this podcast because oh, I get yeah. I get a fair amount of rescheduling requests because of logistics or family or whatever, but yours has been my favorite of all time <laughs> by far. So why are we recording today and not a couple weeks ago? Yeah, I was, I was sitting on a hammock um, with my family, with my cousins and sort of three days before returning to LA from Albuquerque. Um, and the group me, which is where we get all of our immediate news about rare birds goes off um that there's it's like the bat signal for birders right it's like stop everything (laughs) 100 percent. yeah it's it's a it's a life-changing notification noise when you hear that little like (laughs) whatever it's not quite a ding like the text it's like a i don't know but whenever you hear that your heart skips to be a little bit um but but anyways i i get this notification three fulvis whistling ducks are in um at Bitter Lake National Wildlife Refuge, which is down in Roswell, um, where the aliens hang out in New Mexico, three hours from Albuquerque. And I was like, oh no, you know, we've scheduled this podcast and, and I would, I would feel horrible to cancel anything. So I, I sent you a, you know, I, I typed up a message of like, can I please go for this bird? Is that going to be okay? It was okay? so polite. Like if it would inconvenience you at all. And I was like, dude, I'm a birder. I get it. Go see your yeah. ducks. Yeah, and so that I tremendously appreciated, and and you were cool with the rescheduling, and so I shot on down to Bitter Lake and got the ducks, and um, it was it was awesome. There, I had actually missed a couple of them had shown up in Albuquerque in August of 2022, which is they're not actually this common in New Mexico. They've just had a good little stretch. They're they're really rare, um, but they had shown up, and I was in the Bogota airport returning from Colombia when they showed up. So I couldn't be unhappy about not getting them, but I, you know, I got back and went the next day and they were gone. And so I was like, dang, I don't think I'm going to get that anytime soon. And so the fact that they showed up not that long from, you know, not even a year later, um, it's like, Oh, it was great to have another chance. So it was super exciting to see them and they're beautiful birds. They're, I mean, as the name suggests, this, this lovely fulvous color and, They've got like a really nice bluish tone to their bills and, and um, they're just very cool ducks that really stand out amongst the, the familiar faces. I've been surprised at how many non-birders, my four-year-old daughter included, she's kind of a birder, we're working on her, um, nice. don't don't put ducks in the bird category. Like we were reading a picture book the other day and I was like, find the bird. And she's like, there's no bird on this page. And I point to the duck. She's like, that's a duck, not a bird. Like, what do you think it is? If you don't think it's a bird, like separate category of animal. Totally. It's hilarious. I think I saw, I saw like a story from you about that. And then the same day I saw a diff, I think someone tweeted totally different person was like, it's so funny how few people realize birds are ducks. And I was like, this is crazy that people, are, are, but you know, in some ways, maybe not ducks as much, but I can understand the confusion. Like if someone is used to, you know, passerines and, and all they've seen outside their window are, are house sparrows and house finches and goldfinches or whatever. And then they, if they just 
were transplanted in Australia and saw a cassowary, I could see why they'd be like, <laughs> you know, how are these all birds? Um, because there's just such a crazy diversity. I mean, like even something like an ostrich, like how is that related to a, you know, a Wilson's warbler? It's, it's sort of hard to conceptualize, but or, so or cool. Or a penguin. Part of what makes it, right? Yeah. <laughs> like birds yeah, fly. 100%. What is this? Right. No, a hundred percent. It's, it's a crazy, it's a crazy cool group of animals. Total the diversity, the biodiversity alone is so astonishing to me. Just even if you just look at passerines, the color and the beak shape and the the way they stand and their behaviors, and it just it feels like this delightful bottomless bowl of intrigue that you can eat from your entire life. And and I'm I'm regretful that I started this at 37 because <laughs> you're gonna have decades and decades more birding under your belt. And what a gift to start so early. Yeah, I can't wait. And and um, I was on a pelagic uh, Saturday, and there was a a birder, quite a bit even younger than I am. I, I don't know quite how old he was, but I was just pretty psyched to see. You know, there are people starting at at even younger ages. At, like you mentioned, your daughter <laughs> uh, getting her going at what did you say four years old? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, She's really into crows. Awesome. Nice, nice, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, there's people getting into it, you know, um, and and it's super exciting that so many people are are able to. But I, I'm always astonished to see, even you know, even younger folks getting into it, and that's pretty exciting to me. Um, what advice would you have for young birders for someone who's maybe thinking about getting into it, and you know, they don't have a thousand dollars for a birding scope, and they can't drive yet? How how do you get started? Yeah. Make friends, um, make, <laughs> make, make friends a, with cars. <laughs> yeah. Make, make, um, I mean, obviously there's an age where maybe you don't want to make one, but I, Facebook is such a funny and, and sort of actually awesome tool for, for bird networking and, and friends. Um, everyone talks about, Oh, Facebook is like only for, you know, a much older generation. There's no, there's no place for Facebook and, and, and whatever. And, you know, in the younger generations, like that's kind of the rhetoric around it, but it, it's actually an awesome like tool to a, just post about adventures and sort of, you can treat it as a blog and it like, it reminds you, uh, it's fun to like see three years ago this day and like, be like, wow, that's awesome. But it's also like almost every birder has a Facebook. And, and so that's a great way to connect with people from your region. And, um, you can join groups. There's often like New Mexico rare birds, birding New Mexico, California rare birds, whatever the case may be. Um, so I, I would get on Facebook is one piece of advice and, and just try to, um, even if, you know, if you see a birder, say hi, introduce yourself. Um, I, I almost would never, there's a lot of settings where I'd be disinclined to like, you know, introduce myself to someone, <laughs> to a stranger or, or just, um, you know, make a connection unprompted but in birding it's like always i usually feel comfortable just saying hi to anyone because sort of what we talked about how welcoming it is and and um so yeah say hi to people you see and make a facebook are the two things that come to mind so Uh, stranger danger is real unless the person is holding binoculars and then they're fine (laughs) yeah um more or less yeah (laughs) We'll take that advice with a, with a good grain of salt. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I, I, agree. I love Assess your, 
your point though, that social media, you know, social media left unchecked can create all sorts of havoc. And all these studies are coming out, especially for younger people that it can, you know, heighten depression and isolation and all these things. But I think you're so right that when it's used properly as a tool, like birding Facebook is very different than, you know, compare how many likes you get with your friend who got more likes Facebook, right? Like this is tell the tales of the adventures and meet other people and, and talk about, you know, Hey, we're all going out to ban tree swallows on Saturday and you can come and we'll train you. And like, that's a very different social media experience. Yeah. A hundred percent. And it's sort of a way to feel like you're birding and, you know, even when you're not able to be outside, it's, um, it's like a second opportunity to see what it, I love seeing what other people see. Like it's a super exciting I can scroll through my feed or, or Instagram too and look at stories and posts about people's amazing adventures. It's always sort of a, a bright spot in a day where I'm not able to go out and, um, and totally. be doing the same thing. Totally. And the international aspect, you know, I don't know that I'll ever get to go birding in Rwanda or birding in China or birding some of the places that have the world's most beautiful birds, but you can connect with folks who are birding there or who live there and are guiding and, and be a part of the world through, through the screen, which is not quite as good, but it's pretty darn good. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I hope you, I hope you're able to get out there one of these days, wherever wherever you (laughs) I have plans. My my husband's like, is our entire retirement going to be birding? And I'm like, you you married me, sweetie. You didn't know what you were signing up for, did you? Yeah. Right. You can read books by the hot tub and I'll be out in the jungle. Um, exactly. so, so you have this wonderful crossover where you've done some, you've written for the ABA, you are a eBird reviewer for New Mexico. You've worked as an Audubon Society board member, which I imagine is a volunteer position. There's not a lot of money in birding. Um, but you've worked for all these different birding organizations or contributed to them. Tell me about that world of crossover and interplay and do birding societies play well together is it easy to work for many and contribute to many or do they fall into separate buckets? Yeah, I would say to some extent they fall into different buckets, but mostly they're, they're very connected and it all comes back to like not being afraid to reach out to people and sort of get yourself, put yourself out there. And, um, it's the same idea as messaging Fernando. If I can go look in his yard or saying, Hey, you know, I, I once emailed that central New Mexico Audubon. I was just like, Hey guys, if you ever want a hand in anything, like, um, here I am. I'd love to help out. I, I'm, you know, I'm passionate about, I'm passionate about the work you guys are doing and would love to help out if possible. And, you know, there was a positive response from to that. Um, so I think just like putting yourself out there and, you know, without expectations, because sometimes things don't, you know, don't happen. But if you, if you send a friendly email and, and offer, um, you know, offer yourself, put yourself out there in in whatever the sense may be. Um, I think that that's an amazing way to like get involved. Um, it's a like proactive and fun step to take. And, and it's funny cause I, like I said earlier, I'm actually like, I consider myself fairly introverted in, in most contexts, but like something about just like this world of birding makes it, um, makes it easy to feel comfortable doing things like that. Um, hmm. but yeah, I don't know. I think just, I think there's a lot of opportunities to be had with a little bit of, of, um, 
proactive uh, question asking and, and, you know, making connections and whatnot. Mm. Doesn't hurt to ask. Exactly. Yeah. All people can say is no. And then you're still in the same places where you started. It doesn't hurt. Right. Right. Especially if you, you know, tactfully send the email, like even if it's a no, maybe you've left an impression and, and have totally, you know, yeah, whatever the case may be. Um, built, a, built a connection, made a friend, gotten in someone's backyard. <laughs> totally. Exactly. Um, no, I mean, it's funny to trace like, not only did I make friends with Fernando because of that, now here I am on a, on a podcast because <laughs> of that. Like you just never know where things will go. And, and so it just never hurts to um, make connections when you can and be friendly to, to everyone because um, who knows where it'll, where it'll turn out. Well, I'm so glad you so glad you said yes. I remember being in college. You have no time. And the time you have, you want to go see birds. So this is a gift. This is a gift to, to me and to our listeners for sure. Well, thank you so much. I mean, it's a gift to be able to talk about birds with a birder anytime. So it's a, it's a blast. I'm about to send out the hardest question of the podcast. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. What is your favorite bird? <laughs> wow. Today. Today. <laughs> Yeah, I, I tend to take too easy way out easy. I take the easy way out of this question by saying my favorite family, um, or my favorite, or my favorite, yeah, (laughs) or my favorite birds in the U S if I can kind of make it like a little bit of a Mac, um, a micro question. Um, hummingbirds are my favorite family for sure. Cause they're just like, talk about inherently hopeful and, and, joyful to see um between the color and the size and the fuzzy wings and everything i mean it's just like so awesome to see a hummingbird um and the diversity is just you know insane you've got some of the brightest birds in the world and then you've got some of the like even the drab hummingbirds um there's a there's a hummingbird called giant hummingbird which a friend of mine jesse williamson did a ton of work on but but um they're like the size of a morning dove and they're brown so they're not like they're not like your stunning hummingbird in terms of gorget or, or body color, but they're, you know, to see a hummingbird that's this big is just, you know, insane. I mean, it's hard to imagine. And I haven't seen one before, but I, I'd love to. And so just that diversity of size, of color, of bill shape, the sword-billed hummingbird has um, the longest proportionate bill of any any bird out there. Um, and then you have thornbills and the Colombian Andes with you know, little tiny needles of bills. Um, there, you can just kind of see evolution at play in some ways with with the evolution of bills and and how they've adapted to like different flowers and regions. Anyways, hummingbirds are great. Um, and in the U.S., scissor-tailed flycatcher or vermilion flycatcher because um, scissor tail's amazing tail and the amazing peach belly and vermilions. I mean. If a vermilion flycatcher is perched, uh, you know, across a football field, you might be able to see with the naked eye because it's just glowing red. Um, and, and so they're just so fun. And then when, when they display, they look like a little ball in the sky with like a little flapping of their wings. Uh, uh, they're just amazing birds. And I'm, I feel bad for the eastern U.S. who does not get to see them too often. Um, Those are so red with their little mohawks, little, yeah. little red punk rock hairdo. They're <laughs> Right. hundred percent. Those are yeah, so fun. I, I, I saw my first one this year. I had never seen one before. And, and there was one, oh, nice. 
vagrant that landed at the at the marsh near our house and it was one of those there are 30 birders at this marsh looking for it and everyone's <laughs> looking everyone's looking everyone's looking everyone's looking we can't find it and I was like you know what I'm just I'm gonna go for a walk and halfway around one of the retaining ponds I looked up and I was like oh oh I think that's it I wasn't <laughs> even looking for it but it was like yeah. this special special gift to the solo hiker right that's awesome <laughs> um and and a testament to the <laughs> sometimes I think it's so important in a bird like I think a lot of times when people are looking for the same bird <laughs> there's like this um this drive to all stay together which is I can understand because it's fun to you know it's fun to be with the community and all hang out but like sometimes just doing that little walk or branching off can be the best way to to find something um so good good for you on taking the walk that turned into refining that thing Awesome. I gave up and that's, and then it found me. It was, it was a good day, but yeah. yeah, I mean, the bird can hear all 30 of you. You know, the bird is like, no, thank you. Like, right. Right. <laughs> I'm trying to find breakfast and you're all scaring it off. Yeah. Well, they're totally. beautiful. If you live in the Eastern U S or if you've never seen a vermilion flycatcher, um, you gotta, you gotta get on the Google. You gotta go check one out. Cause they are, they are pretty rad. Um, uh, well, For Jordan, sure. Thank you for the gift of your time. Where can we find you? Where can we see your cool duck photos? Where can we get connected with you in your birding life? Or do you not want to be found? That is an equally fine answer. <laughs> yeah, Facebook is probably the best place. Just uh, Joden Fine on Facebook. I love to see other people's adventures. And so I was looking for, uh, I was looking for new connections on Facebook. Um, and yeah, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it the willingness to have me here and um, loved talking to you today. It was a great gift. Good luck on all your studies and thank you for being willing to work to change the world. Yeah. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great day. And you know, one of these days maybe we should um, do some birding in OC or LA. I so love close. it. I yeah. would love it. I would just awesome. listen and learn, learn to the, learn from the master. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Have a great day. The Thing with Feathers is produced by me, Courtney Ellis. Many thanks to Del Belcher for the music, to Todd Peterson for the name inspiration, and to Emily Dickinson for the beautiful poem and for being in the public domain. Until next time, my friends, keep looking up. Your soul. Is it that?